He is our King. We come to another Palm Sunday, a day in which we celebrate that time when Christ entered the city of Jerusalem. The entire city, it seemed, turned out to lay the palm branches at his feet in their own clothes and garments. He sat on a donkey and rode through the city as the whole city, it seemed, shouted out, Hosanna! Save now the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And we know that story from this side. We understand what Palm Sunday was really about. But the sad reality is many who were there that day, in fact, the majority of those there that day, not even his own disciples, understood what would happen that week and what Palm Sunday was really about. I'd like to set it up for you by going way back to the time three and a half years earlier when the Lord Jesus was about to be immersed by John the... I knew you Baptists would say that. John the Baptist. And on that day as he was immersed, you remember the Spirit of God, that third person of the Trinity descended and lit on Christ in the form of a dove. And so his affirmation of the deity and ministry of this Son of God. And on that day also, a voice came from heaven. It was the voice of God, the voice of the Father, God the Father, who said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And so the Father gave his affirmation to the ministry of the Lord Jesus. And when Jesus submitted himself to baptism, he yielded himself to the Father and to the one who would empower him, the Spirit, to perform his ministry for the next three and a half years. And as that ministry unfolded, we read the gospel record as time and again Jesus did some pretty miraculous and marvelous things to announce to Israel, I am the Messiah. I am your King. I am the Savior of the world. And as he performed those miracles, he did things like made the blind to see. He made the lepers whole. He healed withered limbs. He made the lame to walk. But the most significant thing that he did that had not been done to that point in time was stand outside a tomb. A tomb to which he'd been invited four days earlier, but so that the disciples would begin to understand what he really was all about. And others around would. He waited four days, and in that four-day period, you know, Lazarus died and was placed in the tomb. Jesus could have come sooner, but for the sake of Israel and for the sake of his own followers, he waited. He got there that day to the tomb, and the shortest verse in the Bible announced what occurred. One of the most tender verses in all the Word of God. Jesus wept. Why did he weep? He wept, my beloved, because he grieves with those who grieve at the hour of death. I thought about that over the time that I've been here. The bakers who were in the first service, not long after I got here, their son went home to be with the Lord. 
Don Amstead recently, her hubby went home to be with the Lord. The, uh, the carols here today, just the second Sunday without her husband, who two weeks ago went home to be with the Lord. And I got to tell you, it's tough to know what to say in those hours except this. What joy to understand. Jesus weeps when we weep. He cares about our grief. He cares for us. Yo, I want to suggest to you, while he wept over death, that always grieved him. He never met someone, I don't think, who had died that he didn't raise from the grave. But at the same time, that day he didn't weep just over death. He wept for another reason. He wept because he looked around and he saw no belief around him. They didn't yet understand who he was, not even his disciples fully. He wept over unbelief. How do you know that, Larry? Because of the prayer he prayed. Father, for their sake so that they will glorify you and believe that I, the Son of Man, was sent by you, so that they would believe. Empower me to call Lazarus. And then with thunderous voice, you know the story, he said, Lazarus, come forth. And that dead man walked. Now hang on to this. It was because of unbelief that he grieved that day. I believe that. Stay with me. Around that same time, he was walking with the twelve, his disciples, his followers, and he saw not far away a tree at some distance, and he made his way toward that tree, and he pointed it out to the disciples, and when he got to that tree, he cursed it. And as they came back just a few short days later, they were astonished to find that that tree that was so alive was dead so quickly. Why, why did he curse the tree? He cursed the tree because even though the scriptures say it was not the season for the fruit, still the tree boasted of fruit. Therefore, he condemned the tree because it boasted of something that it did not have. Stay with me on this. A dear friend of mine pointed out just a week ago to me about that story, something I'd never seen before. It was not the season for the figs to be ripened in harvest. Why would Jesus expect a tree to produce fruit if it's not the season for the fruit? And why would he curse it if it's not the season for the fruit? The answer is this. I didn't know it until my friend told me that the fruit, unlike any other fruit tree, the fig fruit is the first to appear on the tree, not the leaves. And after the, tree, after the fruit has begun to develop, the leaves then come on the tree and they shade the fruit in that desert land so that it can continue to ripen until the time of harvest. And when the time of harvest is there is when the 
tree is the fullest with leaves. And so the tree itself said, even though typically it was not the time of harvest, I have fruit. But because there was no fruit, the tree was cursed and perished. Now stay with me. I think that points out a reality since both of those events, the raising of Lazarus with all the unbelief around and only a few who believed afterwards. And then the cursing of the fig tree was Jesus' way of preparing the disciples for what would happen on the um, a Palm Sunday, that first Palm Sunday. The multitudes would boast, we believe, Hosanna. They would praise, they would announce, they would describe to Jesus, this is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, our Messiah, our King. Hosanna, save us now. Jesus was saying to them, he saw the crowd far differently than even the disciples did. He was trying to say to his disciples, don't be fooled. Many boast of belief and fruit as if they were my followers. You and I know that the multitude, though a few believed, the multitude would in a few short days in that same week not be crying out, Hosanna, save now our king who's come in the name of the Lord, but they would cry something far different. Crucify him. So I think that gives us a whole different view than typically we have of Palm Sunday. Sure, I'm glad they all said, Hosanna, he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus is pointing out the fact and has and prepared his disciples for this fact. He has pointed it out. Those multitudes who say they believe have no root, have no depth, have no relationship with me that is born out in truth ultimately. And that, my beloved, is what for him Palm Sunday was sadly about. Listen to the way John describes that Sunday when he entered Jerusalem. The next day, that is Sunday, a great multitude that had come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Then Jesus when he had found a young donkey, sat on it as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Would you join me in talking to God? Father, give us a fresh picture of what Jesus saw that day. Help us to understand the hearts of people and thereby understand our own hearts a bit better as the scriptures unveil to us what's going on around this whole scene on Palm Sunday. It seems on the surface so good to us.
God, there are many that day whose hearts did not bear fruit, who sounded good and said the right thing, but were none of his at all, but would call for his death. Help us, Father, to see it as Christ did, and then to see ourselves open our hearts to us today so that all of us in this room might, after this fresh look at that Palm Sunday from John's perspective, help us, Father, to see ourselves and make certain that we are your children. (coughs) Don't let anyone, Father, walk from this room without having accepted Jesus as more than a deliverer from a conquering enemy, namely Rome. Help us all to walk from this room with assurance that Jesus conquered the greatest enemy, death, which is the judgment of our sin. He's conquered us. Help us to walk out and everyone to walk out assured assured that we are yours. Granted for Jesus' sake in his name. Amen. Now, I want to come at this text a little differently than I ever have in the past and that we hear most of the time on Palm Sunday, I want to simply ask a question of the text and the surrounding context. How do I know this is a king? Israel all said he's a king. But how do I know he is and how do I know I'm a part of his kingdom? And I hope we can answer those questions well. How do I know he was a king? First of all, because every king has enemies, and in this whole scenario, Jesus had enemies all around him. Though they didn't seem apparent on the surface, still every one of the gospel writers recorded the enemies around him. Let me introduce you to the first. In chapter 11, verse 53, it's in the context of Lazarus having just been raised from the grave. And when Lazarus was raised from the grave, Many people believed and genuinely began to follow Christ until it really upset the Jewish leaders. And from that point on, when people began to follow him because of Lazarus' resurrection, from that day on, chapter 11, verse 53, they plotted to put him to death. Who were they? They are the, if you look back in the context... The chief priests, the religious leaders, and the Pharisees, the people who were leaders who lived outwardly with leaves, suggesting we are genuine followers of Christ, live life as us. And so the religious leaders of the Jews presented themselves to be Leaders, but they rejected the Messiah. They became his enemy. It isn't just the religious leaders. Watch it. Oh, let me back up. I got to talk to you a second about the word plotted. It's the leaders who plotted against him. That comes from two root words, one of which means with, and the other which means deliberated and like uh, most other languages we Americans put it backwards in the Hebrew it's with deliberated and they knew what it meant 
Flip those two and you'll know what it meant. They deliberated with each other, which means they plotted together. It's pretty interesting that when God and his kingdom work is plotted against, it's never plotted against singularly. It almost always is a group of people that are plotting against the kingdom and the king. You remember in the Old Testament, Moses, when he was the leader of Israel, had someone who despised him named Korah. But if you watch this, you know that Korah did not deliberate against him in his own mind and heart alone. He had, listen, 250 elders who also plotted against Moses and how to bring him down. And that isn't just true of Moses, it was true of Nehemiah. You know there was an enemy, Tobiah, but he didn't plot alone. Tobiah and Sambalat plotted together against Nehemiah to stop the kingdom work of rebuilding the wall. It's pretty interesting that never does one plot alone. And it's just as true this day when Christ was here. The religious leaders got together and deliberated how to bring him down, how to stop this king. It isn't just that, it's also that those within his closest group, his Ahabs, if you will, his intimate friends, they near this scene on Palm Sunday had met together with the Lord when a woman came into the room, and you'll remember the story. She broke a bottle of the most expensive perfume of the day. She poured that perfume, that oil on the Lord, worshipped him with it, and one of Christ's own said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold and given to the I'm just checking out, see if you're still with me. The poor. That sounds like a great question on the surface. But some other questions need to be asked. Judas, why do you not understand how valuable he is? If you understood how valuable the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the word that we saw in John 1, the creator of the world who was made flesh and is now in your presence, if you understood who he really was, would you ask why was that wasted on him? He's God. Would you not want to ask further, Judas, I mean, I know you're concerned about the poor, but if you are so concerned, how come your bag's so full? Why haven't you taken that and given it to the poor? And you who really have caught this story would then ask a third question of Judas, which would be something like this. How come the bag's not quite as full this morning as it was last night? What did you do during the night? with the funds in the bag. And if he were honest, he would have to answer, I didn't give it to the poor. But now you're condemning our Lord? Yeah. Even those closest to him became enemies of his. That's how I know he's a king. And I want you to see one other thing. 
Do you know that around the palm, around Palm Sunday, that the chief priests, along with the Pharisees, plotted to put Lazarus to death also? Because on account of him, many believed. They were jealous that they were losing followers to this king. And so they plotted not only to put Christ to death, but to put a Christ follower to death. And I'll just throw this out here, church. Did he not say, if they hated me, they will hate you also? That's a question. Did he not say, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you also? That's how you know that he's a king. A king has enemies. From those distant from him to those closest to him. Does this phrase mean, mean anything to you? Et tu, Brute? In that Shakespeare play about Caesar and Brutus, his closest friend drove the knife into his belly and took his life. And Jesus looked at those who should have known who he was, for they were religious leaders. It was through their scriptures His coming was prophesied and they knew it. And through those who were closest to him, he could look at them all, close and a bit further. Those who should have been his friends, genuine followers, loyal followers, they thrust the knife into him. They're the ones who said crucify him. Now, my job here, coming to a close in God's timing here in the next month or two or three, I don't know. I'm not a prophet. But my job here is to prepare you for your next servant leader who walks with God. Right? I've never had a moment where I've forgotten that in the last year or four months being true to what I'm called here to do, I want to make an application of this reality. Be careful. For almost always, the enemy of the king and his work does not reveal himself on the outside, but reveals himself on the Is that true or not? Come on, Baptist vote. Is that true or not? Yeah, Yeah, it is. I sort of feel like Paul, nothing like him really, but he said one time, I knew a man one time, whether in the body or out, I do not know. And when he said, I knew a man, you know who he was talking about in that context. He was talking about himself. So let me just be up front. I knew a man one time. Me. Very early in my ministry as a shepherd of a flock. And one whom I thought was a dear friend, a leader in the church, a deacon, 
called a secret meeting in his home for anybody who had concerns about the leadership and direction of the church. Let me just tell you, I do not, or I do assume some responsibility for that because I was a very young pastor and one of my first pastorates had made some very big mistakes. Having understood that, I was still shocked when I heard after the fact that 40 people showed up at the deacon's house to express to him their concerns. The end result of that meeting was they believed God's Spirit was leading them to distribute a petition around the church to ask for a meeting with all the leadership to remove the leadership that exists now in the church, namely the pastor and the staff that had come. 120 people signed that petition. I remember being grieved and broken. And I uh, went to that meeting. 120 people signed it, but they weren't all a part of the real attitudes behind it. They were just thinking, ah, it'd be real good to have another church family meeting. The meeting started at 8 and ended after midnight. It was an open mic meeting in which I sat and listened to what felt like the very devil breathing out all kinds of hatred and accusation and deception it just wasn't true and I remember thinking a couple of things one I'll never be a part of an open mic meeting again pretty wise huh didn't take me long to grow up the other is I've never forgotten it. The enemy divides from inside far more than from the outside. I can honestly say if that leader had just come and sat down with this kid preacher, the end result would have been far different. It took eight years to bring that church back to a place of harmony. I've never believed since this day that the enemy was a deacon or a group of people who met secretly or people who signed a petition to this day. I believe the enemy's not flesh and blood, but principalities and powers in heavenly places. What are you saying, Larry? I'm saying your next servant leader will be somebody who wants to honor God and love you. And there will be times when if his heart is like that, the enemy will rear his head. Please remember Larry said he usually rears his head on the inside, not the out. Legitimate caution? That's all around. Palm Sunday. 
enemies all around him, but close to him, trying to stop the kingdom work. How do I know he's a king? Not only because he had enemies, but as every king, but also because every king has loyal subjects. And Jesus had loyal subjects that day. A great multitude of the Jews knew that he was coming there to Jerusalem. And they came to adore him because they'd heard about Lazarus. And then they cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now some of you are going to say, gotcha, Larry. For the first time since you've been here, you picked something out of the Bible and misrepresented what it's saying. You said he's a king who has loyal subjects, and you've already said on that day there were not many loyal subjects there for the same multitude that said Hosanna will also say in less than a week, crucify him. They weren't real followers of Christ. No, but among them were some followers. Lazarus was there. The twelve were there, one of whom was an enemy, but the other eleven who would remain followers of him, though they hide in the shadows cowardly for a short period of time still. They're the ones who became a part of the foundation and upon whom the church was built, the apostles and the disciples. So you get it. And many who were present at the resurrection of Lazarus and many who just heard the word also believed. While many more turned away, there were still loyal subjects present that day saying, Hosanna. My beloved, how do I know if I'm one of those loyal subjects? I know that when my heart Here's a song my cherry sung this morning. When my heart hears the worship team speak of him crying out from heart, Hosanna. When my heart cannot but clap and enjoy the worship. When my heart cannot but cry out to God. How could this be? As fresh today as the day I believed, how can this be that you love me so much you gave your son for me? I know, but that's still fresh in my soul. I know I belong to him. There were some that day who when they said Hosanna, it rang in their hearts. Yo. We Baptists need to learn a little bit of that. Elaine and I were in South Africa and we listened to South Africans worship God. And it was amazing how they just poured their heart out to God. I watched, we watched as some elderly lady moved out of her seat and came to the front and danced in the presence of the Lord. And many of the younger followed her 
in praising him, my heart said, I wish I could take you all back to America with me and teach these Baptists and teach me how to forget about each other in our worship and how to pour our hearts into adoration of the living God. God help us worship as did they of old. The genuine worship experience. I don't have time to park there long. I wish I could have parked more. But let me add this one other thing. How do I know he's the king? Because every king has a legacy. He leaves a legacy. And we might ought to define what a legacy is. It's just simply what he's known for after he's gone. They wanted him to be known for the deliverer of Israel from Rome. He had something far different in mind. He wanted to be remembered far differently than they wanted to remember him. It's all wrapped up in these words in verses 14 and 15. Then Jesus, when he had found a young, what? I didn't impress you, did it, that word? When he had found a young donkey, hang on to that because it's important to this whole legacy thing. He sat on it, and as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, your king is coming. Let me just let you in on this quotation. It's from the Old Testament. It's from Zechariah in the Old Testament. And the phrase daughter of Zion was repeated in several places in the Old Testament, always meaning just one thing to the children of Israel. The chosen people who were under oppression. You remember the Egyptian bondage. You remember the Babylonian bondage captivity. You remember the Persian captivity. And now Israel's under the Roman captivity. And Zechariah looks way ahead to these oppressed, chosen Old Testament people and says, you oppressed people will see your king coming on a donkey. And the colt of a donkey, one that had never been ridden. It's like, you go for it. I'm not getting on one of them. Why a donkey? Let me take you back to the Old Testament King David. He was known as a warrior, and what beast was associated with war? Uh, war? Not a donkey, but a horse. And the horses would pull the chariots and take them into battle. The beast of war was a horse, which is why David rode a horse in his inaugural parade and was not allowed to build a temple for God. If you're with me, he wanted to build a temple because his heart cried out something very good. God, why should I live in a house made of cedar when you dwell in a house of tents? Yours is a house of canvas, mine a house of cedar. That's not right. Yeah, but you can't build it because you ride a horse. Or if you will, you're a man of war. But Solomon 
in his inaugural parade. He didn't ride a horse because he's not a man of war. In fact, his name alludes to it. He's a man of peace. And this man of peace who would rule in peace through much of his reign rode in his inaugural parade on a donkey. What was Israel looking for? A king on a horse or a king on a donkey? Yeah, you're with me, aren't you? We're looking for someone to war against Rome and bring down our enemy. But he, as the bumper video said, didn't come to bring down an enemy with war. He came to bring peace. Peace between fallen man and Almighty God. Your turn. Two quick things. One, so accept the legacy, the legacy of peace, the legacy of this king, the prince of peace, Jesus. Let me create a holy moment here. Would you bow your hearts and heads with me, please? Do you remember the day? Is it fresh in your mind? The moment no one looking around here, the moment that God gave you the grace to believe in his son and accept what he had to offer. Jesus came to make peace between you, a fallen sinner, and God, the holy God of heaven and earth. And he did that by the sacrifice of himself on the cross. Do you remember the day when you said, God, I accept what you did? And I delight in receiving peace with you. Remember the day you did? Would you lift your hand if you remember that day and want to worship him today for that? Just lift your hand and say, that day I rejoice over. Amen. What a great worship moment. A number of you did not slip your hand up. I'd like to talk to you in this holy moment for a second. The sweetest verse in all the Bible, to my mind, is God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes on him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. That verse tells you, I love the way Andy Stanley put it, our small group, connection group, studied it with him. It just simply says, God loved. So we did what love does. God loved, God gave his only begotten son to make peace. So that you, if you accept him, believe in him, you receive forever peace with God. I don't know where you are, my friend, in feeling the weight of that in your life. You are without him. I know he's wired you in such a way that you know exactly what I'm talking about this morning. There's no peace. There's no sense that I have a relationship with God or that God's even at work in my life. I'm not at peace with him. That lack of peace vertically often reflects itself in conflict horizontally with others. 
So you may want to say something like this to God this morning. God, I have no peace. I tried to find it with you and with others, and it's not there. Today I look to Jesus. Today I ask the Prince of Peace. With his shed blood for me on Calvary's cross to give me forgiveness and peace with God vertically forever. If you breathe that prayer for the first time, nobody else looking around, it's just you and me, would you slip your hand up and say, Larry, I'd like you to know, I ask God for that forever peace with him today, this morning, in this holy moment. Anyone, slip your hand up and say, I did today. Last week, there was one who did. Earlier today, there was another. I really pray that those of you who don't have that peace will make it a settled thing in your heart before you leave. The moment we're going to sing, and I'll be standing down here, I invite you to come meet me there and say, Larry, I'd like that peace. I need someone to explain more about that to me. Church, would you look this way? There's one more so here, and I'd leave you with this one. Proclaim the legacy of Jesus the King. Here's what I'd like to say that to you. One of the great things to celebrate in the history of this great church is you were founded as a church that brought the lost to hear the gospel. That's a solid thing, yo. People need to be able to hear the good news here. But I want to build on that, celebrate it with you from the past, but I think God's word makes it clear. He wants more than that from you and me. For he does not say, bring them where they will hear the truth. He says, go and seek them and tell them there the truth. Who has the greater weight of responsibility? Your next servant leader will share the gospel with three or four or five people who may be in a congregation in the service who don't know him? Or the 400 that make up this church, or the 450 who make up this church, are they, do they have the greater weight of responsibility to go out there and tell the story, not to four or five, but to thousands that collectively we know in our relationships. I think the greater weight rests on your shoulders to go. Is that biblical or no? Okay, let's vote. Is that biblical or no? Yo, it is. I ask you, I implore you, you're going to make your next pastor so excited if today the Spirit of God drives that to your heart and you assume that responsibility and determine, I'm not coming back next week till I've told somebody out there. Will you ask God to open that door for you? And maybe even come as we stand together right now and sing, would you come and make a commitment in front of your church family and in doing so, 
you'll gather around you prayer support to make you bold as you go and proclaim that good news and that story. As deacons come and their wives and pray for the next pastor, join them, commit 